David has been anointed by Samuel as the second king of Israel in a private ceremony intended primarily to shape David's own understanding and sense of his call from God. And in the meantime, Saul is still functioning as the king. Even though God has rejected him as such, and the Holy Spirit has departed from him. And as we dive into 1 Samuel chapter 17 today, we will see Saul's army crippled by fear as the Philistines have gathered their armies for battle about 13 miles west of Bethlehem. Yes, Saul's army has also gathered opposite the Philistines. But they have been challenged by the Philistine warrior and champion Goliath, who is that tall. Nine feet, nine inches. And that's from the floor where you are, not up here. Even the adults are going, wait a minute, yeah, nine feet nine. Starting in chapter 17, verse 3, we read the following. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was nine feet nine inches. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 115 pounds. And he had a bronze arm, he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin, javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 15 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This champion versus champion scenario that we see here was fairly common in the ancient world, and many lives were saved by it. But even Saul, who was described back aways in this book as being a head taller than anyone else in Israel, more physically impressive than any other Israelite, 
was still at least a couple of feet shorter than Goliath. And it was Saul whom the people had made king precisely for this reason, to fight for them. You might remember that when the spies scoped out the promised land, their report included seeing the descendants of Anak, people great and tall who terrified the Israelites who saw them. They were called the Anakim, and Joshua drove them out of Israel proper. But some were recorded as still being along the Mediterranean coast. This was the area the Philistines inhabited, and Gath was one of their main cities. And Goliath is called Goliath of Gath. But besides his enormous size, Goliath was decked out with a complete array of the day's best technological armor. A helmet of bronze on his head, a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 115 pounds. You've seen these, made of several hundred small bronze plates that look like fish scales. The armor on his legs, usually called greaves, they protected from the knees down, mainly for the shins and the knees. There was a javelin, we read, of bronze slung between his shoulders. You may see this translated differently if you were using a different text. But it was used to fend off attackers in defensive postures, but it also had some offensive uses. It was probably smaller than the spear that's mentioned next and also in verse 45. We also see next the spear, and it's described as being like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head itself weighed 15 pounds. And the literal word for this head of this spear is flame in English, and that describes its shape. And it was made of iron. The shaft is described as being like a weaver's beam, which is really interesting because obviously it was huge. But it also had a cord that wound around it, which made it go farther when hurled because it functioned kind of like the leather stringing on a football. So when they, throw this, when they threw this thing, the fingers came off the cords and it made it spiral, which made it go farther, like it needed to go farther with somebody nine feet nine throwing it. The shield was one of those large shields that basically covered the whole person and it was so big that Goliath even had a special guy that carried it for him into battle. So here you have this nine foot five foot nine foot nine giant somewhere way up there and he's basically covered with this armor but the shield 
is, was made to be something he could look over and goes almost all the way to the ground. Now, the sword that he had, which he did have, is not mentioned right here, but it is in verse 45. And this was made from an iron blade. That's the picture. We've heard it since we were little kids, but we need to be reminded of what this meant. It's real easy for an army, if you've got a guy like this, to go, yeah, fight one guy and we'll all just sit around and watch. It's not too, uh, it is desperate for the army facing him because they will lose face if they put this off too long. But we see that they do. Now, next in our text in this chapter, we're told how David comes to be a part of this scene. This is important to realize because David didn't start off his day losing an hour like we did today or knowing that later on in the afternoon uh, would be a part that we would be a part of an epic, epic battle of life and death. Normal day, father gave him some errand to run 13 miles from Bethlehem over to the scene of the battle. So David, who is the youngest son of Jesse and has already been introduced in 1 Samuel, had been going back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. And while, while his three oldest brothers that are mentioned here were in Saul's army, David was sent by his father to do what? To take provisions um, to his brothers and to check on their welfare. And while there, the armies faced off and Goliath came forth with his challenge. And if you'll look there in chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, we read this. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, first, second, and will give him his daughter, third, and will make his father's house free in Israel, which means no taxes. In his reply, we hear David's actual words as he speaks. And this is the first time in the Bible that we hear David's words actually recorded. This is the first of David's three short speeches or declarations in this chapter. And they contain the key focus of this entire passage. So, if you are able, would you please stand as I read these three speeches? They're in verse 26, first of all. And then I'll go to verses 34 through the first part of verse 37. And then 45 through 47. Verse 26. 
And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 34 and following. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Verses 45 through 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand this is the word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Maybe seated. What kind of perspective does David have? It is completely different than everybody else in this story. David sees this whole terrifying situation in starkly different terms than everyone else. He has a biblical and theological perspective, a theocentric perspective is a technical term for it. This is what God wants to do and work in each and every Christian in this place with our minds and our hearts to help us grow and sanctify, be sanctified in the way we think. David is not thinking about taking action because of what will be given to the man who would be brave enough and capable enough and probably crazy enough to take on Goliath and kill him. That's not his motivation. He's voicing his own outrage and concern that anybody, no matter who they are, or how big they are, or how valiant a warrior they are, 
would be allowed in this wartime setting to defy the Lord God Almighty in such clear and drastic terms. Let that sink in. Listen very carefully again to David's heart as he speaks. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of whom? The living God. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Verses 45 through 47. You come to me. Trying to look up. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And then here we go. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That is one of the most famous and best used phrases, sentences, Verses in and through the whole Old Testament. When God's name is being dragged through the mud. But he goes on. And that this assembly may know that the Lord saves. Did you expect this? Not with sword and spear and some video game. Or some dream of future superheroes. For the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. Is there any doubt at all about where David's trust and faith is placed? It's in his God. Did this just come out of nowhere? He just happened to be there this day. He actually heard the guy issue the the defying challenge, and oh, all of a sudden he was energized and the Spirit came upon him. This is a result of a man, actually he was probably a teenager, who had spent a lot of time getting to know his God out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sheep. This is a result of a life that's already been described as having a heart after God's own heart. This is somebody who knew God. This was not an aberration. He could start off the day thinking, hey, I get to go over there and deliver food again. My father told me to. It's a long way, 13 miles through hill country. But I get to go somewhere. I get to see him, I get to check on what's going on, having no clue that this would happen. 
He didn't have to say, I'm going to go home and check with Dad first or any of the other millions of things that we would do. The focus of this chapter is not on David's courage. It's on God's adequacy in David's weakness. All of us have heard way too many sermons about be like David. The example is there, and it's important, but there is something much more important, which is the focus of this, and that is that God is adequate in our weakness. Not only does David say this with his mouth, he backs it up by his actions, because it's easy to make proclamations of strength. Until the action starts. But what do we see happen? David volunteered to Saul. He went out to face Goliath with his wooden shepherd's staff, which he may have just put down at some point here, obviously. He picked up five stones and a sling. Here are two of those five. No, this is, this is from the Valley of Elah. Some of you have seen these before. Pass them around. This will give you a feel of the stones that he picked up. It's a, these came actually from the same place. We didn't steal them. We were told by our faithful tour guides that um, we could do it. Now, th- there's these kind of rocks all over the place right there hundreds of thousands of them, so I don't think they're going to run out. But I I want them back. So keep passing them around. Somebody will pick them up in the back. He picked up five, and no matter what you think, those five don't have secret meanings for everything else that you can possibly imagine because he pulls out one. He knew as he took a wooden staff and these five stones and put them in a little bag and the sling and the sling was one of these kind not they didn't have rubber bands okay it's this kind and somehow that worked I wouldn't try it inside your house especially if you have young children it may may be much more than you can handle but obviously he knew how to use it it's all he had but think again He's walking out to face somebody that was basically impervious to anything except God. God, in his strength and leading, is going to use his servant David to accomplish his purposes. Now, the interesting thing here as well is that David was really getting ready to face three Goliaths. Because first, he sees his oldest brother, Eliab, his own flesh and blood, who is dripping with hatred and contempt for this upstart young teenager. And 
Why is that interesting? Because it mirrors Goliath's contempt. In fact, the tone and some of the words are very similar. Eliab's tongue just drips with contempt in verse 28. As he alludes to, can you hear it? David's few sheep in the wilderness. Like, you're of no account. You're nothing. We're the ones in the army. Don't get so upset. You have nothing to do with this. Go on and on and on. And he accuses him even of being presumptuous and evil by butting in where he shouldn't be. That's his first Goliath. Second was Saul, who in the absence of God's presence and power and his own lack of strength and strength and faith, accused David of what? Being just a youth. Huh, I think his older brother just said that. I think uh, Goliath is going to say that. And all that that implies. Inexperience, a novice, a boy can't do a man's job, unwise, he just didn't look like he had a chance. And you, you can just go on and on with that. And then Saul tried to invest when he realized that David really meant it and he was going to go out there. He tried to invest in David's saving enterprise. Take my armor. We're not going to get out of this. You notice the odds are there? Israel's in a bad place right here. They're going to be servants of somebody. It looks like it's written on the wall already. So Saul's trying to jump in and make him wear his own armor. Maybe so, if something strange does happen, he could say, well, the king tried, or if something really weird happened, which he didn't expect, and David did become victorious, it was the king who would get some of the applause, just because, why? It was his armor. Saul has done this before, has he not? Remember when Jonathan snuck out and nobody even knew he was gone and he attacked the, the Philistines earlier and then and, and started that whole battle and who got the glory for it? Saul, his first win in the battle while he was sitting on his rear in his camp, his own son, who in the next chapter will be introduced to as a faithful friend beyond all measure faithful uh, to David. I think Richard Phillips is correct right here. He, he says Saul was conveying goodwill to David and providing his help, but in a way that expressed his own reliance on worldly strength. And David recognizes it immediately because he's trying to make David wear stuff and use stuff that he's not even, has never even seen before on his, anywhere close to his own body. Saul then had basically the same attitude as Goliath. He couldn't get over the fact that David was not experienced. You are but a youth, and he told him that. And secondly, he was not equipped. He was not equipped, so use my armor. And that's the two threads we see running through here. You're too young, you're a teenager, 
And secondly, you're not equipped to do this. And third, he finally had to face Goliath in the flesh right in front of him, spewing all that we've heard him say at David. Utter contempt, not experienced, not equipped. What a joke. You, this army, and your God, and he cursed him. He cursed the Lord. So the stage is set for God to make his point. And the point is that God saves not by the instruments of human power, but through the weakness of his servants. Someone we may not even expect. Someone God raises up who you think, what are they doing there? Very often we see in the history of the church that these are the people that God uses. Circumstances that build them up in their knowledge and faith and nobody knows a thing about it and most of the times nobody ever will but it's usually one of those people that end up stepping out and trusting a God whose strength from the Holy Spirit leads them to stand up for his name in a proper and right circumstance. So here we go. David, who didn't even have a sword, pulls out one stone. puts it in a sling and hits the only uncovered place on this guy's whole body. Right there. The forehead. Right under the helmet. Probably right in the middle. It's where that space is from where the helmet comes down. And you saw how big that rock was. Did you notice what the text says? The stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the ground. What matters is not whether you have the best weapon. Oh, our kids need to learn this. And they need to learn it because they see us learning this. But whether you have the real God. Nobody in their right mind dared to face Goliath in their own strength. And nobody did. But David knew that this was a matter of the Lord God being cursed by the man Goliath. And it was the right time to stand up for his Lord. The giant had challenged Israel's faith in the Lord God Almighty. As if God's people would be more impressed by the fear of Goliath than by the fear of God. Isn't that what this is really all about? Isn't this what any fear that you may have is really all about? As David stood before the giant, 
his challenge to Goliath rang with this passion for God's glory. We need to see this, and we need to see it over and over. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. So the question is, do you think theocentrically with God at the center, with God being the foundation? Because we know immediately from our actions how big our God really is by what we do. Do we think through the grid of our great God and his word, trusting him first and foremost and not our own strength and devices and our own grand plans and designs? That's really the question. If that's sinking in, then do some reflecting right here. This is a day of reflection. We'll start with this. How did you do that? Think theocentrically this past week as you faced the temptations of compromise in your day-to-day lives. What you knew was right in the face of the influences all around us all, all the time, to be successful or to gain more material affluence or worldly stature or popular approval or whatever it may be. Do you, do I, trust in those things for our security and peace of mind? And if we're honest, we would say, yeah, way too much. So then God works in our lives. Circumstances happen. Those are opportunities to learn how to put your trust in him and faith in him instead of just falling to pieces. Afraid of anything and everything. Scott Oliphant, who many of you know, uh, from Amarillo and is now a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He writes, if we ever think that we are capable in and of ourselves to fight the Lord's battle, we lose the battle altogether. The Lord uses the weak in the world to shame the strong. He uses the simple to confound the strong and mighty. He does that, as Paul reminds us, so that no one will have occasion to boast. And we've all seen it. We've all seen times in our lives where God uses a friend or a relative or somebody you don't even know in a context, but you know immediately that they know God Almighty. Why? Because the way they handle themselves 
because they know who God is and who they are. They know what their weaknesses are and that Jesus paid the price for their sin. They know where they stand in Christ now as a child of God. And it just oozes out of them. And God uses those people to ask the question in a class or to declare a caring, loving attitude to a coworker who is a complete jerk or to stand up and not laugh at that joke by the water fountain or the coffee machine or to respond to the hatred coming from somebody who's having a bad day at some place where you're shopping. On and on and on and on. God uses a person whose heart belongs to the Lord, who knows who they are in the Lord, in ways that people that think they're hot stuff, all they do is mess it up and they've lost the battle before they even start. How many times has the word of a little child completely silenced a room? Because it's so profound and simple and honest in its question. How many of you had experienced a lounge? Teachers, lounge, nurses, doctors, whatever you do. And you walk in those places, and there they are again. Well, I think, and so and so, no, that's not right. This is how you do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you just, even if the donuts are great, you just turn right around and leave. You can't stand it. Christians shouldn't be those people. We have an opportunity to see past the sin in other people's lives and see the need in order to speak if we have an opportunity right to that heart or to stand right before the bully or to ask a question to the arrogant academic right in front of the class that can just silence the whole place. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again. And I pray that it will keep happening over and over and over again. And that we need, we need to understand. We can't pick the place. God kind of puts us in there most of the time when we didn't even expect them. If we learn to fight in God's battles by becoming more and more alert to all the little day things that can demean and disrespect the Lord when we ignore them, or just stay quiet and give in, thinking that it's not really a big deal, then we'll be more and more prepared for the bigger ones that won't be able to be missed because they are so in our face. But you won't be ready unless you live that way, learn to live that way, learn to live more that way in the day-to-day little things. It won't happen. And we do this by learning to rely on God's faithfulness and seeking to exalt his glory and not fighting him over 
Why did you let that happen? I hate you for that. Do we need the armor of Saul or the weapons of the world with so great a Savior at our head? If the battle is the Lord's, do we need any weapons except those he places in our hands, strengthened by grace through faith? We stand on scripture alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. We come now to what Jesus set before us to do regularly as, as the people of God. Because this is a reminder that God sent a volunteering son of God to the earth to live in a human body, take the contempt, the curses, the disrespect, and the ignoring in order to live perfectly through those circumstances so he could be the acceptable sacrifice for sin, which he gladly took upon himself for the joy set before him to purchase a people for himself. The sacrifice that the people from David's time and way since the beginning before him all the way into the future in our lifetimes, all that pointed to this sacrifice as being the difference. the person who we place our faith in. This is a visible and physical reminder of the joy that we have as his people to know him and to have him in our lives. The reverence that we're privileged to give him as we live our lives as his very own possession. The faith that we can by his grace Put in him day by day, no matter what. Christians are his because he has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus lived the perfect life demanded of us so that he could be an acceptable sacrifice and die in our place for his sin. We'll sing this beautiful hymn now in order to prepare our hearts.